Don't you guys love moving backwards? Oh wait, we sprung forward. I have good news. Today we're also moving backwards. We just finished up Hebrews chapter 7, and we get to move backwards to Hebrews chapter 5 because we skipped a section. And uh, so we're going to spring forward on the clock and move backwards in the Scriptures today. But our encouragement does not come as one that encourages us to move backwards in our faith. It comes as one that we should move forward in our faith, that we should grow in maturity. Certainly, the greatest need that the church has today is to be a people who are mature for God. The greatest need that each individual Christian has before God is to be one growing in the knowledge of who He is and what He has done for us. Now what this entails is, I think, much bigger than simply growing and being more dedicated to God or opening our hearts up to God. Certainly, that's a part of it. But what should come as a result? The greatest lament that I believe that belongs to the church is that Christians come to faith and they see no need to continue to mature in that faith. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at what I myself have called a dry portion of Scripture, discussing this priesthood of the priest Melchizedek that Christ has come under or over. Did Christ come under it or did He come over it? He's over all things. Not sure which is the right way to say that, but He comes after it, certainly. What's all that have to do with Christians maturing today? Well, you see, it wasn't very easy to talk about this high priest Melchizedek, was it? Our author has something to say about the difficulty that we have in reading about this priesthood that looks back to the biblical history through Genesis, looking at this priest and where he came from, and also the situation of the Levitical priesthood and the descendants of Aaron and what they should look like in these things. Um, and I, I have a presentation this morning. I'll, I'll get going um, to help us move along in this because it is difficult to talk about. It's difficult to think about who is Melchizedek and what is his relationship with all of this. And the author wants to talk about it. We've seen already moving through the progression of this passage that he begins in chapter 5. And by the time he gets to chapter 7, he's back to talking about this order of Melchizedek. And here in our passage today that I want to address, he almost interrupts himself. He, he interrupts himself to say, I know that this is difficult and you need to hear it because understanding this will help you to grow in your faith. I want to read then from Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 through Hebrews chapter 6 verse 3. If you have your Bibles open this morning, I invite you to do that now. Open up to the Word of God that you can read along with me as I read out loud. And we will hear what God's Word has to say about pushing onward to growing in maturity. But first, I think it only right that we should pray. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning eager and expectant to hear your word. God, we have high expectations that your word, when proclaimed rightly, will see sinners come to know you. That it will cause the wayward to be drawn near you. And so, Lord, our prayer this morning is that as we read your word, that we would hear it. Not just with human ears, but that we would hear it with soft hearts ready to receive it. God, I pray that you would wake us up as we've lost an hour of sleep last night. That we would be ready to hear your word proclaimed and that we would understand it, that we'd be able to receive it and we'd be able to receive the truth that it proclaims to us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. The Bible says... About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. 
You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of the instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. The first point I'd like to address this morning is simply the garrulous state of the saints. Now, some of you are here this morning and you see the word garrulous and you're already thinking, what have I gotten myself into? Garrulous is defined by the Oxford English Dictionary. Simply means to be excessively talkative, especially about trivial matters. To be excessively talkative, especially about trivial matters. This is the exhortation the author of Hebrews is giving to the Hebrew saints that he is writing to. You have become garrulous. You sit around and you talk about things and you, you look good for the most part, but the things that you talk about don't really matter that much. You have a trivial, topwater faith. You are suckling the milk of Scripture, in other words. In other words, he's saying, you like infants are taking your nourishment from what is intended for babies in Christ rather than diving in to the deep things of God. Rather than understanding the mechanisms at work in bringing us to salvation. Rather than affording us grace in the moment. Rather than looking at how God provides for you now, you are fixated and focused on how God brings you from sin. These things are important to know. It's important to know that God delivers sinners from a sinful state, that He redeems us from a depraved nature and calls us into His family. But what good does it do for Christians who should be mature at this point to sit around discussing such things? Certainly the old, old story is worthy to tell. Certainly it's an encouragement. But we must move on to how God provides for us once we've been saved how He grows us, how He transforms us, how He nurtures us all the more. And He does this through a spiritually, nutritionally rich diet of the Word of God. Our author says, about this we have much to say, but it's hard to explain. It's hard to explain to a bunch of babies. It's hard to discuss these things to a bunch of immature people in the faith. And it's especially hard since you have become dull of hearing. What happens when we sit around suckling the bottle of spiritual knowledge? Our ears become dull. That's the other translation we could go with. Rather than your ears becoming dull of hearing, we could also say your ears are dull. Your ears have become dull. That word translates, it means sluggish, torpid, having lost momentum, dead in the water, apathetic, dormant. In other words, the implication of having dull ears is that your ears have become sluggish. Your ears have lost momentum. Your ears have become dead in the water. Your ears have become apathetic. Your ears have become dormant to the point that they're not even working the way that they are supposed to. When you hear the word of God proclaimed, you don't respond to it. As you look at this order of Melchizedek, it does not stir you to marvel at the majesty of Christ who comes to fulfill that which is in the Old Testament. It doesn't motivate you to leave the church and to serve God. Rather, you are dormant listeners of the word. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles and the oracles of God. Certainly, such a state for the saints has been foretold. 
The Paul, when writing to his protege, Timothy, said that for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. If this was the state as the author of Hebrews wrote to his audience today, and if it's foretold by Paul looking to the day in the future when people will no longer want to hear sound teaching, but rather they would rather be tickled like children by the truths of God, how much more true can we say that it is today? The state of the church is one where we do not seek the deep things of the God. Rather, we simply seek to acknowledge He that knows us, He that gets us, rather than exploring what that actually means. Vance Havner, the revivalist, said that the devil is not fighting religion. He's too smart for that. He's producing a counterfeit Christianity that is so much like the real one that good Christians are afraid to speak out against it. We are plainly told in the Scriptures that in the last days, men will not endure sound doctrine and will depart from the faith and heap themselves teachers that it would tickle their ears. We live in an epidemic of this itch. And popular preachers have developed ear tickling into a fine art. Our author isn't telling us this to beat us down. He's telling us to remind us that just because we say that we have a simple faith does not mean that we have a simplistic faith. The warning that we should take heed of here is simply that apathy is the other side of ignorance. When we become apathetic towards what God is teaching us, that is, that we don't care, that we're not stirred, we not only become ignorant that we don't know, but that we don't care that we don't know. We don't care about sin. We don't care about all of these things. And what happens as a consequence of this? Right in the middle, we find isolation. We find the people of God who are supposed to be deeply concerned with what God teaches him through his word. Deeply concerned with how these things are connected. Deeply concerned with what we look forward to in the future. Deeply concerned with how it should manifest itself as we live our lives. Deeply concerned with how we should share our faith to others because of its urgency. Who are apathetic towards all of this. Not caring. We discuss sin as if it's a trivial matter. We don't mourn for our sinfulness the way that we should. When we address sin, when we see it plainly, should we not weep? When we see sin in the lives of others, should we not mourn for them? If we really care about the kingdom of God, these things come naturally. Jesus taught us himself, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Where is our comfort if we will not mourn? If we will not acknowledge sinfulness, well, it doesn't exist because we're apathetic and as a consequence, we live ignorant lives. We live ignorant spiritual lives. Saying that these things are simply up in the air and too far-fetched, like the order of Melchizedek. What's it matter? Is it not enough to say that this is the inspired word of God, that God, through his divine providence, included this exhortation, this exposition that Christ came to in the order of Melchizedek because he is never ending? Well, if that's not enough, does it not teach us more than that? That he is a greater high priest who comes before us, able to make propitiation for our sins. Does it not make us want to come to him and pursue righteousness because in the old system, the priest had no control over the contrition of the one who came to offer sacrifices. But now God, through the Spirit, in the new system, in the new covenant, in the New Testament, the new system gives us a new heart. When we live lives committed to ignorance, 
the natural consequence is that we isolate ourselves. We isolate ourselves from the people of the church. We isolate ourselves from the Word of God. We isolate ourselves from growing. You see, we say that we have a simple faith. But that does not mean that we have a simplistic faith. Albert Einstein said that we should make everything as simple as possible, but not simpler. Everything as simple as possible, but not simpler. I wound up in a bit of trouble a few years ago as um, vacation Bible school season was coming upon us. And I was looking at curriculum that would be suitable for the church, and one of them coming from a, a Baptist publisher I found was teaching a false view of the Trinity. It was teaching what's called modalism, a view that essentially God and three parts exist in different modes rather than recognizing that God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one. I made a Facebook post about it, as all mature Christians do when they find something that stirs us. And I got a phone call from a sister church, from a pastor asking me to remove my post because, well, they were using that curriculum and he didn't want his church members to see it. I said, what do you mean? Use a different curriculum. It's teaching modalism. A heresy. Not just a, uh, hey, this might be a heresy kind of thing. Something that the church has rightly condemned as a heresy for about 1,500 years. Yeah, but we're just teaching it to children. This is the simplest way that we can teach it. Some of you yourselves might find yourselves in this predicament. When teaching children, we want to simplify things and make it simple to approach so that they can understand it. But we should not go so far as to make it more simple than it is. You've heard all the illustrations of the Trinity. The Trinity is like a four-leaf clover. No, it's not. It's like an egg with a shell and a yolk and a, the white part. That is a terrible illustration of the Trinity. God is not made up of three different parts. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is God. At the same time, the Father is not the Son. The Spirit is not the Father. We cannot simplify things and make them less simple than they actually are. Some things are simply complicated, and we would be better to make it as simple as possible to approach it without simplifying it to the point where it becomes simplistic. Simple means that it is plain to understand, that it's comprehensible. Simplistic is a pejorative descriptor of watering down a truth. I am often worried of the consequences of watering down the truth. And much of my hardship as a teacher of the word, as your pastor, as a preacher, is I don't understand these things as well as I would like. I don't know how to make them as simple as I would like to make them. But I caution myself, do not make them simplistic. In my desire to make them approachable, I cannot go so far as to make them more simple than they actually are. Of God's nature, we know God to be perfect, holy, righteous, good, defining in Himself what love is. We also know Him to be just and true, jealous for His own glory, and wrathful towards those who persecute His church and His chosen people, and towards His own people's insolence. If I were to approach this simplistically, I could say that I could water it down into some simple truth and say that God's love covers up all His wrath towards sin. But that is not the truth. God is just. He satisfies His wrath with His own sacrifice because of His love. There's a hint of truth in that statement, but it's more simple than it should be. The simple truth is far greater. His love does not bring Him to delight in the failings of His people. It causes Him to mourn their disobedience. The simple truth should cause Christians to mourn with God, not only for their own shortcomings, but for the shortcomings of the world in their hearts. 
Oh, I'd be afraid to oversimplify an already simple truth of Christ's role as priest and work making us into a royal priesthood and His holy, only possession. If I were to approach that simplistically, we could say that no deed or action is needed or desired on the part of the Christian in seeking to glorify God. We simply need to trust in Christ's work as high priest. But the simple truth is far better than a simplistic watered-down version. The simple truth that Christ has made us co-inheritors of the kingdom of God alongside Him with the tearing of the veil, making it clear that the throne room of God is now accessible to us through His work. He's made me a co-laborer. Alongside Him, He has commissioned me to carry out the work that He began. The simple truth should cause us to desire to use this great honor. Both in our private lives and in our interpersonal, our relationships. It should cause me to draw near Him when I am alone in prayer. It should cause me to hear from His Word. It should cause me to have a regular diet and appetite for knowing who God is. And in my relationships with others, it should cause me to share my faith. To say that the church is in a garrulous state is something that we can weep over. I say that we have a simple faith, not a simplistic faith. As I look at the rest of this passage where the author of Hebrews is going, after he says that you should be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God, he goes on, almost giving us the natural progression of spiritual life. He says, But the solid food is for the mature, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. He gives us a progression that we have this simple faith that is for the elementary doctrines of God, but that we should be maturing as Christians. And once mature, we should be teaching. That's the three steps that we should garner the simple faith that Christ offers us, that we should gobble up the word of God and the teachings that Christ has given to us. And then finally, that we should go into all of the world and make disciples. Let's talk about this garnering of the simple faith. If you look in verse 13, our author uses the word unskilled to describe these Christians who should be mature, that are acting like babies. They are unskilled. Literally, this means that they are untested. They are not proven. Rather, that they have come to faith in God and they're making it easy. They're doing as little as possible to commit. I don't know what this looks like. Perhaps they're not serving in the church. Perhaps they're not contributing to the needs of the church. Perhaps they're not in fellowship with other believers outside of the church. Perhaps even they simply will not share their faith with others. We are reminded that our faith is compared by Peter to gold. It is something that we are told should be tested, that it should produce genuineness. 1 Peter 1.7, Peter writes, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those who would not practice their faith, make a practice of their faith, are untested, unrefined. Actually, by being committed to ignorance, Christians put themselves in a position of being perpetually spiritual infants. Our author uses the comparison here of milk when they should be eating solid food. This is a graphic image for us to take hold of. Imagine now walking into a restaurant 
Wednesday night or Sunday night. Do we go to the dairy on Sunday night or Wednesday night? I don't know. I have kids, so I'm not able to do it. But oftentimes, after our evening Bible studies, a group of adults who are unencumbered by parenthood embrace their freedom, and they go to the dairy and have fellowship with one another. It's a beautiful thing. I love driving by after I'm done teaching and seeing my church members' cars lined up at the dairy. Imagine walking in there. And everyone sitting down is holding an adult-sized bottle. Wouldn't you think that's weird? Wouldn't that make you go, what kind of a place is this? You're at the dairy. The best catfish in Greenwood. Get you some solid food. Have you tried? Have you tried their chicken fried steak? It's amazing. Doused in gravy. But everyone's drinking a bottle. Here's a sad truth. If you're drinking a bottle too and you walk in that room, you won't think it's strange. It should put you off. It should put you off that Christians who have been raised in the church are suckling bottles. Tax season's here. A lot of you probably don't file your own taxes. You probably let the experts do it. I know I do. I'm good at a lot of things. Taxes ain't it. I let the experts help me with that. Do you know why I trust those experts? Because they're skilled. Because they are practiced. Because they're doing it over and over and over again. And even when tax season isn't here, they're keeping up with legislation that's being passed. And they're aware of the ways that these different things work. They are wrapped up in it. So I trust them. They've been proven. They've been tested. It makes it possible for them to secure me the best refund possible, or in my case, the least amount of money to pay in because I never get refunds. Do you want to go to somebody to help you file your taxes? If sitting on their book was a how to file a 1040 easy for dummies? I think if I saw that book sitting on my tax associate's desk, I'd probably go find somebody else. I don't want a dummy. If I walked into a church and I saw how to get saved for dummies sitting on the pastor's desk, I might chuckle. But if I saw him feeding the congregation week after week milk, I might want to grow a little bit more. Vance Havner again said, Blessed is the Christian who can accept the start by simple faith, that which others reach only through years of questioning, and reach it only then because they give up trying to analyze it and decide to accept it. We have a simple faith that is ready for us to accept. A simple faith that certainly is the goodness of milk. And there is a time for milk. And it is at the beginning of our Christian pilgrimage. But once we grow up, we must move away from it. This simple faith is not something that we can conjure up on our own. It's not something we can make up on our own. Vance Havner in his quote that I just read makes the point that there are those that come to faith by simply trusting a simple truth. And they are blessed above those that spend time and hours covering all of this and trying to convince themselves only to eventually give up by all of their analysis and declare that they accept it. I'm in that latter group of individuals. I had to simply give up at some point and realize There's no way to disprove this. In fact, there's too much proof for it. What brought me to faith was, in many senses of the word, tiring myself out. But it wasn't 
all the work that led up to getting tired that makes me a Christian. It's the simple spiritual truth that if you trust in Christ as your Savior and you trust Him for the forgiveness of the sins that you own, you will be saved. William Shakespeare said, there are no tricks in plain and simple faith. It's simply something we give over to. Forsaking all that we are, we trust in Him. And what are we to do with this simple faith after we've garnered it? What are we supposed to do with this simple faith after we've come into possession of it? We're supposed to dive deep into the word of righteousness. Our author says, verse 13 again, that you have become unskilled in the word of righteousness. More notably, this is not just the knowledge of what the word of Scripture says, although I think that is part of it, but it is the imputed righteousness of God onto those who believe. This is in the moment. When you are saved, not only are you justified from all of your sinfulness, but imparted to you is the Holy Spirit of God who promises to dwell within you, who will not depart from you. This Holy Spirit of God not only convicts you of sinfulness and your sinful desires, but He causes transformation to take place in you. He causes you to grow all the more. In fact, He gives you the power, which you did not have before, as a slave to sin, as one who was in bondage, but now you have liberty to turn away from sinfulness. Imputed righteousness means that on God's account of being righteous, He puts righteousness inside of us. Paul clearly writes in Romans 4, 6 that God imputes righteousness apart from works. Not because of anything that we have done, but because God is great, He has given us this righteousness. Now, although works is apart from righteousness imputed to us, does that mean that our lives should never change? By no means. We must not be unskilled, untested, unproved. We must live new lives. This is the gospel of God. Not that He commands us to earn His favor, but that He has garnished it for us freely. And now we must put off our old selves to death, growing in the knowledge of His righteousness. Being unskilled in the word of righteousness results in a brittle faith, my friends. Being unskilled and untested results in a brittle faith. We must garner this simple faith and then we must use it. We must try it on and try it out. We must wear it with confidence that it will not wear out. There is a time when it is right to suckle as a child on the elementary doctrines of truth. But we are no longer children. We are not infants. We do not carry around with us the pacifier of righteousness. We carry with us the stake, the full word of God, ready to tear into it and digest it, pulling it apart and looking at the tissues and digesting all that is there for us. It is fibrous and rich, packed with iron and zinc. God's word is full of truth that is enough to supply us for an entire lifetime. We must go on. We must push, push onward to gobble up the teachings that God has given to us, the doctrines, and to put them into practice. We are to build upon the foundations of a simple faith to grow in maturity. All Christians are called to grow in spiritual truths in spiritual wisdom, in spiritual understanding, and above all else, spiritual practice and sacrifice that is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Alistair Begg says, We build on the foundations. We do not camp there. And with God's help, we're not going to remain stuck at the level of Christian beginnings. Our author gives us a list of these Christian beginnings. Verse six, chapter 6, verse 1, he begins saying that we have repentance from dead works. Repent of your sinfulness and believe. 
instructions about washings. This is ritual washings, maybe even baptism. The laying on of hands, which is seen as the church giving her assurance to someone to go out in the world to declare God's word to the lost. The resurrection of the dead, the day that we look forward to, the hope of our faith that the dead will be resurrected along with us to be with Christ. The eternal judgment that comes at the end of time when God will rectify all things, judging what is wicked as wicked and what is righteous as righteous. Can I tell you my fear? We've said that we've seen the garrulous state of the church. We've garnered a simple faith. My fear is that the reason that Christians are not growing in their faith is they simply have not grasped the simple elementary doctrines first. The reason that some of you are in your Christian pilgrimage is because you've never even dealt with these foundations. Repent and believe the gospel. We treat baptism as if it's some postgraduate course that we must be baptized. It is an entrance into the faith. The laying on of hands, and yet we teach evangelism as if it's only for those that have been trained to accomplish evangelism. Resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment, what's that? This is all so far off. How can I even begin to wrap my head around this? Don't I need some special master's degree or doctorate in theology to be able to understand the end times? Loved ones, all you need is the word of God. But what are you to do with it? What is a toddler to do with a stake and a knife and a fork, but look at it and push it around their plate. You must train yourself up to be able to digest the Word of God. We must have powers of discernment that have been trained. And make note here, when the author writes that they should be trained, he says that we should train ourselves with practice, with constant practice. This is verse 14. The powers of discernment trained by constant practice. And yet we spend time online looking at these false teachers who I said would rather spend time that have developed some sort of art form into tickling the ears of young and immature Christians. And we say, this is good. I'm really getting it. This guy's a fantastic orator, not like my preacher. And we say, I really want more of this. And we wonder why Christians are falling off and they're going wayward and they're not sticking to the word of God, why they're adding things to it. We wonder why we are falling victim to a social media epidemic of false doctrine. Because we are not practiced in discerning the word of God for ourselves, in reading it for ourselves, and taking ourselves out of it, and asking what does it simply mean? The reason we're unable to digest meat is because we've given ourselves a spiritual eating disorder. What happens when a Christian who should be maturing goes back to milk and doesn't eat anything but milk? Their stomach becomes weak. Their digestive system becomes weak. They're no longer even able to handle the real word of God. They've become spiritually anorexic. We talk about discipleship. Even though the word of God says that we should be training ourselves. Discipleship doesn't exist so that someone can come alongside you and they can show you the way. Discipleship comes so that someone can come alongside you and encourage you when you become weak. It's not so somebody can understand the Word of God for you and give you facts that you can regurgitate. I've met people that can quote the BMA doctrinal statement right off of their head as though somebody were quoting Scripture themselves. Can you... 
Do the work of understanding God's word on your own? I believe that you can. I believe that if you've garnered a simple faith in Christ, that you can train yourself in God's word in understanding all of these things. You can gobble it up. You can dive into it. One of the ways that you can do this is through a Bible reading plan where you are regularly in the word of God in a community of believers who is regularly in the word of God alongside you, keeping pace with you so that you can discuss things as you come to them, so that you can ask questions and receive answers. The state of the church is one of despair. We need to be involved in discipleship communities if we're going to be successful in growing in our faith. A few years ago, three years ago, a community of Christian researchers set out to see what were the effects of discipleship and how many people were involved in discipleship. Now, when I talk about discipleship, what I mean is an individual intentionally pouring into another individual for the sake of growing in spiritual maturity. This can be in a wide range of areas. For example, when I seek out discipleship, I don't seek to get it all from one person. The primary person who discipled me, Wade Allen, the pastor of Temple Baptist Church in Rogers. He taught me the Word of God. He taught me how to understand the Word of God. He taught me how to study the Word of God for myself. And I am ever thankful for him. He is a wonderful pastor. Now I'm going to be critical of him. And if he's listening to our podcast online, I'll just say I'm sorry. He keeps himself too busy to visit his church members. When I wanted to be discipled in caring for people, I did not go to my pastor. I went to Ron Fields. You all had the opportunity to meet Brother Ron a few weeks ago. Although Brother Ron's retired from ministry, you may, <laughs> retired. He's done his time. He's supposed to be resting. Do you know what he does throughout his week? He's not involved in any clubs or anything like that. He has a calendar that he keeps where he goes to the nursing homes and he visits with people that he loves. For a young Christian, that's a scary thing. It's hard to spend time with old folks. What do you talk about? I mean, these are the fears that come up. What do I talk about? What do I say? What kind of things are they interested in? I don't know. I remember the day I walked up to Brother Ron and I said, I would like you to teach me how to visit with people. Because I'm awkward. I mean, you may not know it by all of the charisma rolling off of me as I preach. I'm terribly, terribly awkward. Left to my own devices, I would rather read a book. And be left alone. I have to discipline that part of me though because I know that's not good for me. I went to Brother Ron and I said, Brother Ron, I want you to teach me. Guess how he discipled me? He said, okay, next Tuesday at 2, we're going to go visit. And uh, we went and visited a church member that hadn't been able to be the church. I didn't even know her. She hadn't been to church in 15 years. Brother Ron visited her every month. And we sat down and we talked. And you know what Brother Ron taught me? It's not so hard to spend time with people, even old people. They're just like me. They have fears and concerns that are just like mine. They're worried about their grandchildren. We sat and we prayed and we left. He did that for about two months. Every once in a while, I'm not sure how often it was for him, but at least twice a week, he would swing by the church, pick me up from my office and say, let's go, we're going. And we'd go and we'd visit somebody and we'd pray. And then guess what he did after two months? He said, I'm done. Here's your calendar. Fill it out when you're going to visit people and go and visit them. And I began to visit my students. 
Discipleship comes in a broad range of all sorts of areas, whether it's visiting with people. What about evangelism? Well, how can I share my faith more effectively? I've never been trained to do that. Don't seek out a program. Seek out somebody who's actively doing evangelism. The greatest thing I ever learned in my evangelism discipleship is it doesn't take place in a classroom. Make yourself get out. When you go to the bank to deposit your, your well, most of us have automatic payroll, whatever now, but man, you know what you're missing out on? Instead of going through the drive through walking in and visiting with a teller and building a weekly relationship with them. When you go to get a haircut, go to the same place every single time. When you go to get your coffee, go to the same place at the same time every single week because you're more than likely going to see the same person working at the register and the same other people who are walking in there. The first thing we have to get over in evangelism is making an opportunity to evangelize. This study I made reference to by Barna, conducted in 2020 on the state of discipleship, found that out of a thousand Christians, less than half were involved in discipleship, either discipling others or being discipling them, discipled themselves. You know what's worse? They found out what the consequences of that were. I know this is hard to see, but of those who were involved in discipleship, those who are discipled or in discipleship communities are more than two times as likely to say that they experience joy in their relationship with Jesus Christ. This means that Christians, more than half, are not likely to say they're experiencing joy in their relationship with Christ. Christians who are involved in discipleship in one way or the other are more than two times as likely to say that their relationship with Jesus impacts their everyday life. That means that more than half of Christians are saying that their relationship with Jesus Christ doesn't affect when they wake up and when they go to bed. More than two times as likely to say that they are re-energized by the time that they spend with Jesus. That means that more than half of Christians are not being re-energized by the Word of God, not being re-energized whenever they spend time with God. We're leaving church sheepish. The consequences of this are tremendous. It's not just a matter of not only do you have baby Christians, but you have Christians that are not experiencing joy, that are not being conformed to the image of Christ, that are not energized by their time with God. They view it as a chore. As we lay hold of Scripture, we begin to grow. And as we grow, we do not simply teach ourselves through practice and repetition, but we become equipped to train others. All Christians are called to this ministry. The role of the pastor in the church is not that the pastor should do all of the work of discipling every single individual, but that he should equip the saints so that they can do the work of ministry. The church cannot be one where we walk in and we grab our baby bottle and sit down. We have a buffet. The Word of God is here for us to grow in, and we cannot do that on our own. But we must be committed to this relationship that we have with one another. Because ultimately, through this commandment that we are all called to go and do something, is the final word that we should go. That we should go into all of the world and make disciples. This is the commandment given to all those called by God. Our author writes, and this we will do if God permits because we have been trained, because solid food is for the mature and we have the powers of discernment because we've been trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now we are to be teachers, verse 12. We ought to be teachers. 
Because we've been trained in these elementary doctrines, because we've repented of our faith, because we've been baptized, because we've been commissioned, because we understand the hope that lies before us, because we've been tested and proved. The first instance that we find Jesus giving us this commandment to go is in the inaugural sermon in which Jesus in the synagogue of his hometown reads from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. We're called to preach, to proclaim God's word. Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20 records this commission that God, that Jesus Christ gave him, gave us. Go into all the world and preach to all creatures, baptizing them and teaching them in the things that Christ commanded us. The gospel of God should affect every area of our life and our world. It should affect our spirit, our mind, our body, our society, our economy, our politics. It addresses the human needs of all humanity. The human needs of all humanity are addressed by the gospel of God. Babies don't go out to work and earn a living. Mature adults do. Unfortunately, it seems that the church only wants to do the things that grow, come naturally to it. As I reflect on Barna's survey, survey, I wonder why Christians aren't experiencing real joy in their life. I think it's because they don't know real joy. They don't know the joy that comes from God. They don't know the joy that comes from spending time in God's Word. They don't know the joy that comes from being encouraged by every situation, good or bad in their lives, with peace and understanding that it is through the providence of God that such things have occurred to them. Rather, they complain. We don't need any lessons on complaining, do we? It's like growing weeds. Next Saturday at 2 p.m., the community center is hosting a class on how to grow weeds. You excited about that class? No, you say, I don't need that class. I know how to grow weeds. I'm an expert. I should be teaching that class. I wrote the book. You know what comes naturally to the flesh? Turning away from God's Word. Next Sunday, we're beginning a sermon series called How to Ignore What God Says. Everyone in their natural sinful desires can say, I don't need a class on that. I was born doing that. We need instruction in righteousness. We need instruction to grow, to rebuke and reprove our natural selves, that we would grow closer to God. That we would endeavor to pursue his mission. We might be able to summarize all of Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 3. By saying that the author is simply saying, get on with it. Grow to your ministry potential. Touch the world with the redeeming love of Jesus Christ in every facet of its agonizing need. I think this summarizes all that he's written. I want you to not only know your faith and the simple truth that comes from it, but I want you to grow in it. In your bulletins this morning, I put, rather than an article, the quick survey that I adapted, and it's very small, and I'm not really sure. It's not been tested or vet. I don't know how effective it would actually be because the original survey was like 55 questions, and that wouldn't fit on a half sheet of paper. I put in there a way for you to measure spiritual maturity. I believe there's six different categories. I can say this with confidence. If you fill that out, there's probably an area that you excel in. Some of us naturally are drawn to the ministry of prayer. We are excellent prayer warriors. 
If you're excellent at something, this is what you should take. You should be a teacher. Go and find someone that you see struggling. Go out of your comfort zone and say, I would like to pray with you. Perhaps it's evangelism. Find someone who wants to be discipled, and this is the hard part. You can't disciple somebody who doesn't want to be discipled. It's very frustrating. Go to them and say, I'd like to help you. Perhaps you have found something that you are particularly weak in. Maybe on evangelism yourself. Maybe you said, well, I care about it. I know that it's important, but I don't really do it. Let that stir and motivate you to find someone in the church that you see doing that and go to them and humble yourself and simply say, I would like you to disciple me in evangelizing the lost. Now, on those two extremes, there's probably a middle ground. On the majority of those issues, you've probably realized, I'm ready to grow up myself. I simply need to practice. Write out a plan on how you're going to practice these middle areas that maybe you're not ready to teach somebody in, but you are ready to grow in. And maximize your ministry potential by practicing them. Come up with a plan to put them into practice and into application. We do have a simple faith. We must repent of this garrulous state of the church no longer being drawn towards these trivial issues. Rather, we must rather... Repent and say, I want to grow in understanding of all that God has given me. We must garner this simple faith, and this is not something only for beginnings, but this is something we constantly come back to, constantly repenting, constantly coming back to this simple faith so that we can return and gobble up the Word of God for all that it is. If I put a steak before you, would you not want to eat it? If it was perfectly seared, perfectly seasoned, and it was steaming, would you not want to come and consume it? The Word of God is so much greater than physical food. Jesus teaches us, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be satisfied. Do you hunger and thirst to grow? No wonder you're malnourished. You're not even hungry must gobble up the Word of God. We must go, putting all that we have learned into practice. Father in heaven, I pray that as we come before you ready to stand, that we would be a people of repentance. Repenting of oversimplifying what you have given us. Simply because on our fleshly desire, we do not earnestly desire to understand all that there is in you. God, I pray that you would forgive us of our apathy. God, I pray that you would forgive me of my ap apathy towards sin. In my own life, God, I pray that you would forgive me of not seeing what you have called sin and caring, but rather relying more on your grace that it might abound. God, I pray that in my repentance that I could stand knowing the joy of your forgiveness. Lord, I, I praise you for offering me such grace. And I ask, Lord, that you would call me back to a right relationship with you, that I would stand and be yours and that I would know you. God, I pray that you would teach me to grow in your word until the day that you finally call me home. God, I pray that you would not let me see my own wretchedness, but that you would deliver it from me. 
God, I pray that I would grow in your word, that you would create in me a heart that desires to know you, that desires to know your word inside and out, how it connects and how it relates, how it's accomplished and how it's fulfilled. God, I pray that you would help me to grow in an understanding of who you are, that I might be able to be yours. Father, as the church stands this morning to sing glory and praise to your name, I pray that we would stand fresh and new in who you are, motivated, not discouraged by a garrulous state, but motivated for a church that is gobbling up your word day by day, growing in fellowship with one another through worship and songs and hymns and spiritual songs. God, I pray that you would create in us new life. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen.